Hi, my name is Luis, and you are listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. First, we're excited to let you know that planning for Season 2 of Thank You for Your Service is well underway, and we'll be taking the podcast in a little bit of a different direction than we did in Season 1. We'll be launching that series starting in November. Today, we're bringing you the first of a few bonus episodes we recorded this summer with a guest who is one of the most influential figures in the academic world of civil-military relations. Dr. Peter Fever is a professor of political science and public policy at Duke University, where he specializes in civil-military relations and national security. After earning his PhD at Harvard and beginning his academic career, Dr. Fever served as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy Reserves and worked on the National Security Council during the Clinton and Bush administrations. He has conducted extensive research on civil-military relations, and he has authored and edited several books, including Armed Servants, and Soldiers and Civilians, The Civil-Military Gap in American National Security. He now teaches at the Sanford School of Public Policy and leads the American Grand Strategy Program at Duke University. Dr. Peter Fever, thank you so much for joining us on Thank You for Your Service. We really appreciate you taking the time. I'm honored to be included. You've been a prominent researcher of civil-military relations for many years now, we were wondering if you could describe what motivated you to start studying the topic and where your career has taken you since then. So I love the way you that intro is. That intro is, you're very old, uh, and so tell us how you are still capable of functioning as a scholar. Um, so I uh, was interested in national security for a long, long time. I can remember spending hours in the library, literally, uh, in the library in college, uh, they had something called a newspaper, which you held in your hand, and you. Um, this was during the Falklands War, and I was fascinated by the lead-up, but, but mostly the uh, unfolding of that war, and it, uh, I can remember, you know, looking forward to going to the library to read the next uh, day's story about it, and I found it just a, a, a fascinating issue. And, of course, nuclear weapons and the revived tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union that what we sometimes call the second Cold War, 79 on, that was happening during my college years. And so uh, it was natural that I would want to study national security. I actually went to graduate school to study the ethics of nuclear deterrence. That's what I had put in my grad application. And I took a course on ethics and IR with Joe Nye and discovered he was writing a book on it. And I read the draft. I realized, man, there's nothing I could add. <laughs> uh, I couldn't improve on what he had. I'm a, a minor stuff, but just not a dissertation's worth of new ideas beyond what he had said. So, so I was looking for something else to do. Uh, and I actually got into 
my nuclear interest got me involved in a battlefield nuclear weapons project by virtue of Steve Biddle, who was a classmate of mine. And he got me a job at, at Institute for Defense Analyses, and I was a research assistant on a battlefield nuclear weapons project. And uh, I thought maybe I'd do a dissertation in that area. Uh, and I was casting about really for dissertation topics when I was assigned because I w my funding came through the Avoiding Nuclear War Project, I was assigned to be the research assistant to a guy named Peter Stein, a physicist from Cornell, who was going to do a history of permissive action links. There was a real interest, this is in the mid-80s, early 80s, uh, interest in good ideas that, that sort of everybody agreed was a good idea, and why did it take so long for that good idea to emerge? How did these good ideas emerge? Permissive action links being one of them. And so I was assigned as his flunky, and we did a, a oral history project uh, interviewing everybody who had been involved in the uh, design of the permissive action links. What is and a then, permissive what, action link? Those are coded locks that uh, separate possession of the nuclear weapon from the ability to detonate it. Okay. So the, the you might hold the weapon, but it's inert until you type in a code that renders it... Uh, live. Uh, of course, early PALs were, didn't function that way, but that's what modern PALs do. The point is, I helped them write that, that, up that project, and I realized, wow, there's a big dissertation idea in this project because permissive action links came into being when they did because they were a technological solution to the problem of maintaining American custody of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And as I dug into that, the, uh, the American custody problem was predated by a civilian custody of nuclear weapons problem that was really the first fight in the U.S. nuclear policy. Uh, the, we developed these weapons and Congress said civilians must maintain custody. These are not normal military weapons. And so the early fight of, of nuclear command and control was a fight to maintain civilian custody of nuclear weapons. And the big dissertation idea was we have a principle of civilian control of the military and in the nuclear realm, civilian control of nuclear weapons. But what that meant changed over time from 1945 to then the present, the mid-80s. And so that's where my dissertation idea came from. And, of course, civil-military relations was – one of the bodies of theory that this policy problem interacted with. And so I got into civil that way. Long-winded answer to a short question. <laughs> just as a fun fact, I don't have any follow-up for this. I was wondering if you could just tell our audience who your PhD advisors were, your committee. Yeah, so Joe Nye was my chair, and um, and then Sam Huntington was on the committee, and, of course, he had this the civil-military angle down and ash carter was the other guy on the committee and he had the nuclear operations side down and i always joked that i deserved a phd just because i could schedule a meeting when all three of those people were able to be in the room <laughs> at the same time they were really busy busy advisors yeah, but great team i i learned a lot from each of them that's quite a team so you also spent some time in the policymaking realm um, working on the National Security Council under the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. I was wondering if there are any experiences from that time that particularly stood out to you or surprised you. Well, yeah, I, 
I actually went to graduate school wanting to do both, uh, to be both a pol- in the policy world and a professor. And that I was naturally drawn to Joe Nye, who, whose career you know, embodied that. He's a, a brilliant professor, really a fabulous teacher. Not a lot of people know this, but he's a master teacher. I learned a lot about teaching from him. But of course, he's also had an interesting policy career. And he told me that if you want to do both, you have to get the academic union card first. That's the harder one to get. You have to get tenure. So he, I basically followed his advice on how to navigate both an academic career and a policy career. And that meant prioritizing the academic track ahead of the policy track, with the exception that if I landed a Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship, which is this special fellowship that brings in academics into the policy world, that I could do that before tenure. And that's what I got. I got a uh, IAF, they're called International Affairs Fellowship, in 1993. Uh, and that was basically a hunting license to work inside the U.S. government. The IAF paid my salary and I could work for free. Uh, separately, I was a Navy reservist in the Naval Reserve Intelligence Program. That, had, that was a separate track. But because of that, I had active clearances and it allowed this Hunting license, you know, work for free, active clearances meant that I could get into some doors or through some doors that the typical academic would have found closed. Mm-hmm. And one of those doors was the National Security Council. I, I also was had the benefit that Clinton had promised to cut the White House staff by 25% and proceeded to do so. And then that left the NSC shorthanded. And someone ruled that fellows like IS wouldn't count against this campaign promise. You know, you could have a fellow for free and it wouldn't count against your reduction. So so I was uh, you know, able to get a job at the NSC and I went there to work on roles and missions, which was a big debate in the early 90s. The Cold War's over. Maybe it's time to revisit Key West, the decision in the late 40s to that allocated who would get the nuclear mission, what, how the Air Force would be, uh, would share air mission with the Navy, and, and so on and so forth. And people were saying, well, that Key West agreement worked for the Cold War. Maybe we should revisit it in the post-Cold War. It's a big, big civil-military challenge because this is as close to the heart of inter-service rivalry as you can get. Mm-hmm. You know? Do we need a Marine Corps, or can we get by with just the Army? Those kinds of questions are in play in a roles and missions debate. And I went to help the administration think through this because Les Aspen, the incoming SecDef, was going to wanted to do a big, big revisit of this issue. And so they needed someone at the White House to kind of, you know, manage the White House side of that. Uh, but by the time I got there, the, the administration was so spooked by military policy because of the previous spring's policy conflagration over gays in the military. And so the Clinton administration lost any stomach for another big contentious fight with the military, what, which is what roles and missions would have been. So we didn't do anything on roles and missions, and my portfolio shifted to cats and dogs, um, you know, a variety of things. But I, I got my start or uh, one of my first big things was a civil mill issue, and it was Colin Powell's retirement. And I was the White House staffer staffing the President Clinton's involvement in the Colin Powell's retirement ceremony. 
And I've been dining off of that experience for the last uh, 25 plus years. It was quite a quite a rodeo. In what way? I guess that's really interesting. Uh, well, I, it's a long story. <laughs> okay. I won't. Uh, it would take up your entire podcast. And, <laughs> but the bottom line uh, was, uh, I looked like a foolish staffer, and everyone else had fun at my expense. Um, <laughs> but it was. It was actually, in all seriousness, an important Civ Mill moment because Colin Powell was probably more par- powerful, at least more popular politically, than Clinton was. Mm-hmm. And all of the White House thought that he was the likely Republican challenger in 96. Oh. You know, and it was a little bit of a MacArthur versus Truman, you know, uh, not quite that serious, of course, uh, but everyone thought MacArthur would have political uh, ambitions and political future. And um, and everyone thought that about Powell. And so handling his retirement in a way that was dignified, respectful, but would keep him in retirement. <laughs> that was sort of the mission <laughs> of, uh, of the White House. But uh, back to your principal question, mm-hmm. the idea for my one of my other projects that I did after my dissertation, the book that became Armed Servants, it really emerged out of my time at the NSC where I watched civil-military relations being done on a daily basis, and I said it's just not aligning. The day-to-day practice of civ-mil is not aligning with the theory as articulated in Sam Huntington's Soldier and State. There's no question that the military liked Sam's theory and thought it was a good prescription on how things ought to go, but it was not a good, in my judgment, description of how things actually were going. And what I was seeing up close was not objective control or subjective control, it was something different. And so I came out of that experience trying to find a way of understanding American civil-military relations that better aligned with what I saw from inside in the NSC. And that's this Armed Servants, the book, emerged out of that. Mm-hmm. And that idea of agency theory, if you could explain it, I mean, I know it's an entire book, but very briefly. Well, it it says, imagine the civil-military relationship as a principal-agent mm-hmm. relationship. Principal-agent is a, um idea from the business world, from the insurance world, where the principal, the one in charge, hires an agent to do the work that the principal otherwise would have to do. And delegates it down, but then has to monitor what the agent is doing to make sure it's in alignment with what the principal wanted to do and and uses various techniques of incentives and oversight and punishment and and so on to keep track of what the agent is doing. Mm -hmm. And this better aligned, in my judgment, this model better aligned with Civ Mill on a daily basis than did the Huntington model. Mm -hmm. And so I adapted that framework, applied it to the civil military context. And that's what that book is about. Shifting gears a little bit. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the civil military gap and how there's this divide that's growing maybe between civilians and the military. And we've suggested in a lot of ways that this has negative ramifications for society. You have done a significant amount of empirical research on the civil mil gap if someone, a listener of this podcast or anyone, had just heard the term civil-military gap for the first time, uh, how would you explain it to them? 
Well, I probably would use the phrase 1% and 99% because that's another way that that um, idea is boiled down to a bumper sticker that that we 1% of the mil- of the country joins the military it's actually a little smaller than 1% and that 1% is pledged to defend the other 99% and how do the values and attitudes and perspectives of that 1% compare to the 99% and are there areas where they're in alignment are there areas where they're difference of course you would expect there to be some difference because it's a volunteer recruited dimension and so people who really want certain things are going in that and most other people are not so you would expect there to be some difference but what are those differences how functional are they are any of those differences worrying that's what the gap question is and in the mid 90s this issue, which is a hardy perennial of American civil military relations theory. I mean, it goes back really to the f- framers of the Constitution who worried about just such a gap uh, emerging and were military values consistent with good democratic liberal values. That issue, Huntington wrestled with it in his his book, is a hardy perennial, but it, that it returned with some urgency in the mid-90s in the wake of the, the Clinton problems in civil military relations. And, and Smith Richardson, the foundation, wanted a big study of it done. And they asked, uh, they competed it out. And uh, Dick Cohn was one of the people who was, he's a very prominent um, uh, historian of American civil mill. If, he ha- if you haven't interviewed him, he's got to be next on your list. He's wonderful. Uh, but he, he was toying with doing this project, but he, he wanted help. And I can still remember being in, I was in London. He called me. I was in one of those little phone booths. I had to call him back or whatever. And, you know, it's it, it's very much uh, old school kind of uh, technology. But we were talking and convinced ourselves, let's, let's try to bid on this research project from Smith Richardson. And that's what led to the TIS project on the, the gap between the military and civilian society. And we did what still is to this day, I think, the largest systematic study comparing military attitudes to elite civilian attitudes to the general public. Mm-hmm. And that, for our listeners, is the triangle study that's been mentioned before. So what are some of the ways in which you found the military is actually different from the rest of society? Well, probably the finding that most people remember from that study was the decline in independence in the re- political independence people who identified neither with the republican party or the democratic party mm-hmm. in the officer corps the elite officer corps that as the uh the years ha- since vietnam and the all volunteer force got baked in to the officer corps uh, increasingly officers were of willing to identify with the republican party rather than with independents or Democrats. Mm -hmm. And that raised question about whether there was a politicization, a partisan nature uh, identity being formed in the officer corps. And and people worried about that in the 90s, and it's still an issue to this day. People are wrestling with the politicization of the military. I don't think that was our, certainly wasn't our only finding. I mean, we had 1,000 pages Mm -hmm. of of scholarly analysis and, and, and many, 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 many other 
results. But I, that was that was one that was uh, uh, fairly prominent at the time. So we have this ninety nine percent that places a high level of confidence and public trust in the military in the one percent. But at the same time, there is a decreasing willingness to join the military for that 99% to cross over into the 1%. And so the military isn't representative of the whole nation. And in many ways, as you describe it, there's a professional military caste emerging. Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's a function of the changing technology of war, which reduces the size that's needed, the size of the personnel, how many people need to go into the military to still have a lethal and capable force. That number in today, in 2019, is a fraction of what it was 20 years ago, and that was a fraction of what it was, you know, in the, uh, say, World War II, when the U.S. military reached its largest size. You can have a much more lethal and capable and flexible, usable force, and at a much smaller size. Technology uh, compensates for mass or for personnel. That may, but you're recruiting a small – you still have to have some, mm-hmm. but you're recruiting a much smaller number. And that makes things like a draft where you would draw in millions and millions of people and draw from all sectors of society. It, it makes a draft like that unworkable. It would A draft force would be far less militarily capable, far less useful in defending national U.S. national security interests than our current military. So you're going after just a few. Well, now it's a, you, that introduces the opportunity to just get those who want to serve as opposed to those who maybe ought to serve but don't want to. Right. And you combine these, and over time you get powerful selection effects. And so your willingness to join this unusual institution is partly a function of your familiarity with it. And if you have friends and loved ones who've served, like your parents – you're familiar with it and you know the good and you can manage the bad. And over time, you'll get that that selection effect drawing from smaller and smaller groups. But is that caste system, that family tradition, something that the framers of our country wanted or envisioned? No. That, uh, but they didn't envision a military as sizable as we have today in peacetime. They imagined that uh, you, we would rely on citizen militias that were primarily housed at the state level who, when the balloon went up or when the bugle call went out, would rally to uh, arms and farmers would put down their pitchforks and pick up their rifles and uh, deal with the problem and then go back to being farmers. And uh, that just is not a realistic model for our 21st century challenges. And so what we have today and what we need today is is something very, very different from what the framers imagined. But the great achievement of U.S. civil-military relations is that we're able to have something so different that nevertheless has remained more than not subordinate to civilian authority and living under the democratic principles that our framers set out. And so I, I think our, I think we are, we, the United States, are a civil military relations success story, even though I spend most of my time looking at the places, at the warts, you know, I, let's not 
I, even though I focus on the warts, it's worth recognizing that the overall picture is beautiful and something to be proud of. We'll be back after this break. Chicago, the Windy City, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland. So in some of your previous um, work and remarks, you've described how the public, the American public, despite being across the board pretty skeptical of institutions and of government, has this high level of confidence in the military that's lasted for a while. We were wondering if that high level of confidence is something that can be taken for granted in American society, or if, if there are factors in the future maybe that would shake that confidence. Yeah, this is a, an important question. So when I was divvying up who was going to do what on the TIS. Uh, gap study 20 years ago, um, the two topics that I kept for myself, uh, me and co-authors, one was uh, how um, civilians in the military differed on the use of force and whether that mattered. And I did a whole series of projects with Chris Jelpy on that. And the other one was how public attitudes and public high confidence in the military, uh, whether that mattered and whether that that familiar poll finding, which was familiar even in the late 90s, that the, the military was held in high esteem when other political institutions were not, or most others were not. Whether that, you know, what did that mean and, and how durable was it? That was the the other project I kept for myself, and I did that with Paul Gronke. So in that, uh, Paul and I uh, analyzed our data and came to the conclusion that it was Un, we, I think the title of our chapter was brittle or uncertain confidence. I can't, I can't remember the title, but the concept was that, yes, it's high, but it that confidence is brittle and could be shaken. And we identified different ways in which we thought it was going to go down over the next 20 years. So how do I, how does that prediction look 20 years out? Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, uh, the public support for the confidence in the military remains very high. Uh, much higher than I would have predicted based on the things that I uh, was seeing in the late 90s. Now, part of that is, of course, 9-11. That's, that's part of the story. But it's not all of the story. And so the research project I'm doing right now uh, with Jim Golby, who's you know, one of the top scholars or experts on civ mill of the, you know, of the younger generation, he and I are, you know, right now, in fact, because I'm talking to you, I'm not working on our data right now, uh, trying to understand public confidence in the military. Why is it high? What are the determinants of it? What does it matter? Does it matter that the public has high confidence or is it superficial? And we did a, a big survey uh, through uh, NORC um, and we got a lot of data. In fact, just yesterday we were talking, we said we have way too much data. Uh, I don't know how we're going to make sense of it and get it into, you know, publishable form. But we're, the survey was designed to really tap into understanding why does the public have confidence in the military? And we have survey experiments that manipulate the information respondents have and then 
see what that does to public confidence numbers. And and it's a fascinating question. I think it's it's one of the most interesting questions on in American civ mil, uh, scholarship today. And it's what I'm working on. You've noted in the past that you find it to be somewhat analogous maybe to the high level of confidence that the public used to place in the Supreme Court. Yes, this might be the area where I'm I'm wrong. So one of my one of the things I said in the 90s, I still say it today. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ask me to speak on the subject today, I'd still say it today, but mm -hmm. I don't have as much confidence in it as I did 20 years ago. I I worried that if the military developed a partisan caste, mm -hmm. then confidence in the military would drop. And to me the Supreme Court was a good illustration of that because there had been high confidence in the mil in the Supreme Court just like the military. And then over two decades, the Supreme Court became increasingly perceived as a partisan institution. I think there's Republican judges and Democratic judges. Or for a while there, we had four Republicans, four Democrats, and one confused individual. And that created a perception of the Supreme Court more like Congress, which is looked, as, looked on as highly partisan. And so I said, if the military develops this caste, uh, then it would be uh, bad for public confidence in the military. So, so that's what I said then. Uh, Jim Golby, in his dissertation and other work, challenged part of my argument. And I realized that I was either going to have to fight him the rest of my life or co-author with him. And so I co-authored <laughs> with him. And he convinced me that I missed, in some of my earlier work, the degree to which partisanship was shaping generic attitudes towards uh, the military, that there was a partisan gap in public confidence, mm -hmm. the, that the, the Republican numbers were really, really high in the 90s, mm -hmm. Democrat numbers uh, much lower. Uh, and so even you, it would net out to an average in the supermajority, but that was driven by uh, Republican confidence that was very, very, very high. So that's one thing. And of course, our new survey shows that Jim is right about that. And so that's an important piece of it. But that's not all of it. One of the things we do is we ask the we prime our respondents that, you know, uh, there are studies that show that the military is uh, increasingly Republican. So that's a, a survey experiment primes them that way. And then mm -hmm. we ask the respondents uh, about their public confidence in the military. Republicans. Republican respondents told that it's a Republican increases their support for it. Now, there's not a lot of place for them to go because they're already pretty high, <laughs> right. but still goes up. Democrats decrease. Mm -hmm. And when you tell the respondents the opposite, you know, one of the survey treatments says uh, there's uh, increasing Democrats um, in the military. And then it goes the opposite way. Republicans show a marked decrease in their confidence in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, so partisans in the country don't like the idea that the military is developing a partisan caste uh, nature opposite of their party. And so some of what I saw or worried about is true, but not all of it. And we're still digging into that data and trying to understand it. And I think that's an important and interesting question for folks like you and, uh, you know, emerging scholars uh, and experts to wrestle with. Do you think that that increasing polarization is especially prevalent, more severe maybe in 
this political environment and this time under this administration? Yes, absolutely. There is, uh, you know, there was a lot of partisanship in the 90s, but the polarization of partisanship is much, much higher today than it was in the 90s. And so that's got to be having a conditioning effect on these dynamics that we've been talking about. And we're trying to un untangle that in, in our survey. We'll do another wave um, later that hopefully we'll get at that even better. So understanding how polarization affects uh, the military and public attitudes towards the military is important. I'll back up one level. Beyond just understanding survey responses, polarization is a huge challenge for military professionals as they try to do policy and advise policymakers. So the, the chairman and, and other military leaders worry very much about how can they maintain their professional neutrality and their effectiveness as military advisors in the policymaking process in an environment where policy disputes are polarized and quickly turn into uh, you know, winner-take-all, uh, it's our road or you're a, a traitor kind of uh, debate. That's a very toxic environment for policymaking in general, but it's specifically problematic for the military. So this issue is much larger than just the the public opinion dimension that I'm I've been focusing on this summer. One military issue that's kind of played out in a partisan way publicly over the last year or so is the case of Eddie Gallagher, who is this um, Navy SEAL chief. He was charged last year with a number of alleged war crimes, specifically killing a teenage ISIS captive who was receiving medical attention. Um, recently, earlier this summer, he was found not guilty of most of the charges by a court-martial out in San Diego. But this case was unusual because of how publicly it was handled, with a lot of commentary from the conservative media and tweets about it from the president. From a civil-military relations perspective, what did you make of the way that case played out? Well, it... it it was a painful, um, and it's still going on today. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even as just just this very day that we are taping this podcast, um, the, the military leader in charge of the SEAL force uh, testified that the um, they have a problem, uh, and he said that we we have a problem that's a SEAL wide problem that needs to be looked at, not specific to the Gallagher case, but the Gallagher case is just one of a whole series of problems that the SEALs have been wrestling with, and it's an indication to him that he's got to uh, look at uh, the way they're doing training and the, and the strain on the force. And of course, one of the larger contexts here is, are we overusing our soft, our elite forces? Uh, as the nature of warfare changes, as the nature of the war on terror changes, the increasingly uh, the burden of operations is falling just on on not just the one percent but the one percent that has these special skills and can deploy in extremely hostile environment and so the ops tempo purse tempo is unsustainable and that may the some of the problems we're seeing and 
maybe some of the problems with the Gallagher case were indicators of that. There's another uh, way of thinking about the Gallagher case, though, is, uh, and that's the one that also got a lot of attention this week when the president uh, decided to order the Navy to rescind awards that had been given to the JAG officers who had been trying him, prosecutors who were trying him. And that is that the the White House, and in particular President Trump, chose to involve itself in in the public debate. It's not surprising that there would be a public debate and that veterans groups and and partisans on either side would take one side or the other. What was unusual is the way the White House, and in particular President Trump, personally intervened in that debate, took a side, and in some cases seemed to be fanning the flames of that controversy. Uh, and that's that's difficult. I don't know whether Gallagher is innocent or guilty. It certainly was found not guilty. And so in, in the sense of, you know, under our law, he's innocent until proven guilty. So in that sense, he is innocent. But I don't know the details of the case to know whether that justice was served or not in that case. But I do know that the way it played out was not good for civil military relations and it seemed to further politicize the the military politicized the president's as commander-in-chief his relationship with the military uh, and so it's uh, the the wounds that are from that case uh, are are still with us and haven't healed yet the idea of the politicization of the military we've talked about it with you and we've talked about it throughout our episodes we're going to try to stop talking about it as much because it's just such a recurring topic um but one thing that i think a lot of our listeners have a hard time with is just understanding what the dangers are of a politicized military in america or what that might look like and what you know what is sort of the you know the not the worst case scenario but but a realistic bad scenario right what is a realistic <laughs> bad scenario involving a politicized military in the future a realistic bad scenario is that you have party leaders who are the policymakers. You have policymakers who also have a party identity and are asking the military for military advice on a national security problem. And then as they hear that advice, they say, that's the advice of a military specialist but that's the advice of a Republican military specialist. I'd like to hear the advice of a Democrat military specialist or vice versa. And when they're saying that, they're referring to uniformed military officers mm -hmm. so that, that the military leaders themselves will, will become known as, perceived as, perceived by not the general public necessarily, but certainly by the insiders in the policymaking process, viewed as, oh, that's a Democratic or a Republican general or admiral. Mm -hmm. And so you can discount what they're saying because they're a Republican or a Democrat general. If you inject that perception into the policymaking process, you create a powerful incentive to marginalize the military voice and then to politicize the selection of future leaders. 
so that when you're a Republican, you try to maximize the number of Republicans that you can get you know, promoted and vice versa when it's a Democratic president. Something like this is already happening in the court system. Mm-hmm. And it is having an effect on the perceived legitimacy of the courts and the independence of the ju- judicial branch as an independent check on the executive and legislative, which are expected to be partisan and rightly partisan to a degree. But the judiciary is not and the military is not. And we invest something like the military with vast power that we would not trust to a partisan institution. We would not allow a Republican guard force, you know, Republican in the party sense of Republican or a Democratic party guard force to have the kind of coercive power that we allow the nonpartisan U.S. military to have. And so if the military becomes politicized and it and cannot heal itself and move back to its non-political standing, you have compromised the policymaking process. You have compromised the policies or the leadership uh, promotion process, and you have created pressures to weaken the military so it won't be a threat, and that's not good for U.S. national uh, security. So it's not, I'm not so much worried about a coup. That, that's the, you know, the traditional you know, bogeyman of, of, U, of civil military relations. It hasn't really been an issue in the U.S. case, but it certainly is an issue in many, many other countries. It is true that coup-prone countries often find their military highly politicized. Mm-hmm. Now, that's at an extreme level. We're far, far, far from that. But but that's sort of at the uh, extreme distant threat that we could worry about. There's plenty of bad things that could happen short of a coup. And I, that's why I and most other people working in this area uh, argue for steps to depoliticize the handling of the military. And there's no... I guess I would put it the other way around. Tell me the benefit that accrues from politicizing the military. Whatever benefit it is, it's very short term and narrow and in the narrow political interest of a particular leader. And it's it's never in the larger U.S. national security interest. Turning our attention to ways we can improve these civil military relations a lot of our listeners are educators or students. In your experience as a professor and as the director of Duke's American Grand Strategy Program, what have been the best ways to educate people about CivMil and foreign policy? Well, I think they need to be regular hearers of podcasts like Thanks for Your Service. That's, <laughs> that's essential. That, that goes without saying. Um, no, what, the challenge here is closing the empathy gap, the the. Empathy, the ability to stand in someone else's shoes and, and you know, imagine what it's like to see the world through their eyes. Uh, that empathy gap is is hard, and that's true across all the things that divide us uh, or, or distinguish us, whether it's race or gender or age, and um, in this case, military identity. And I encourage my students to try to close that empathy gap in a variety of ways. One. It's wonderful to have students like yourselves who have military experience and military careers, but are in a civilian institution. So you're sitting next to someone in class. You might be the only military person they know. 
and they're headed, you know, you're at Chicago, so all of your students are going to be successful, right? They're headed to very successful careers, but now they have a face behind the otherwise faceless idea of the U.S. military, and it's their friend that they went to school with. I think that's valuable. You might inject a, a slight different perspective in the classroom discussions, maybe, maybe not, but more importantly, you have helped the the civilians who ha- do not have a military connection to to see the human side of being in the military. So I think that's important. We do that at Duke too. We bring, uh, you know, I, I very much value our veterans and 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 our active duty folks who are taking a year or two or more off to study. Those are real valuable students to have in the classroom. But beyond that, we do stuff like staff rides, where we take students to Gettysburg and we assign them the roles of military and civilian leaders, players uh, who played a role in the Gettysburg battle. And as we go to the different parts of the battlefield, the student is the docent, the student who is playing picket. General Pickett is is gives a briefing at the, the foot of the picket field that became known as Pickett's Charge and gives the briefing on what their the battle looks like to them, why gen, why he thinks that's a good idea to try to run across uh, this open field and how they're going to deal with the artillery and so forth. And it forces the, the students to imagine what it would be like to make it a, a decision, including decisions that turn out badly. Imagine what it must have been like and what was the information available to them at the time. And, you know, the staff rides inevitably reduced to hashtag not my fault. You know, it, it, these <laughs> recriminations blaming other people for whatever went wrong. But that's part of the reality of of military affairs as well is, you know, trying to assign blame is difficult. And so students find that staff rides and simulations, which is another device that does this, these are effective teaching tools to narrow that empathy gap. Well, Dr. Fever, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you for your service and all your work um, that we've had the opportunity to learn from over the years. Well, thank you. Uh, Can I end with a little anecdote about thank you for your service? Yeah, sure, of course. Which is not about the podcast, but about that (laughs) idea. When General Dempsey was chairman, and I have the good fortune of co-teaching with him, civil military relations class at Duke is co-taught with Dempsey. But when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I I urged him to push back against this thanks for your service, you know, buying the military a cup of coffee in the airport and uh, and for all the things that you've explored in, in earlier podcasts that not because it was bad. I think it's a I think most citizens who are thanking military personnel for their service do it sincerely and and are really trying to show affection and it's a good civic act. And so I, I'm not opposed to it, but I think it's too limiting. And so I urged him to do a public service announcement where uh, you know, television commercial where he would be in the airport dressed in his you know uniform and someone would come up to him and say, thanks for your service. And he would graciously accept it. And then the next scene, he would be going, say, to a middle school classroom and he would go up to the teacher and say, thanks for your service. And then he'd go to, you know, the uh, public health worker. Thanks for your service. Go to the emergency room doctor. Thanks for your service. And he would embody the notion that there's a lot of Americans doing public service. 
that are not in uniform. Mm -hmm. And we should be thanking them for their service in the same way that we thank the military for service. I couldn't convince him or his staff to do it, not because I thought it was a bad idea, but because of other factors. But I still think the, the notion there is an important one, that as a country, we'd be better off not if we thanked the military less for their service, but if we thanked other people more for what they were doing. There are definitely so many ways that people in America serve, and I think that recognizing that is one of the best ways we can close that empathy gap that you're talking about. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You for Your Service is produced by Ashwarya Kumar, and our publisher is Haz Yano. Special thanks to Don Hoover. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Kresnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. See you next time.